uh, on what we've been talking about with regard to the authority of the Scripture in today's world. Uh, many of us might think, what's so different about today's world? I think it is different. I think it offers some challenges that aren't unique to today, but I think the, the size and the magnitude in this moment are a challenge for the church. Uh, to set our, our story, I, I want to uh, kind of convey something from college. I was in a, a speech class in college, and we had this part we were doing on debate. We were studying the process of debate, and this is actually debate teams, this kind of thing. And uh, the, the topic of debate was the blue law. I don't know how many of you remember the blue law or what the blue law was, but the blue law uh, was a law that was enacted that basically uh, many of the stores and places of business would be closed on Sunday. So you could go and buy, and you couldn't buy certain things, like you could go to Walgreens, uh, you could get a prescription or milk, but you couldn't get water hose or beer. And so it was, it was kind of a, a strange collection of ideas. And the purpose of it was really to protect quality of life in a week. And, and part of it had to do with the family and, and getting past some of the abuses of a work week in, a, in an industrial, industrializing nation. But certainly a lot of it had its roots in religion as well. That Sunday was God's day and it was a, a day of rest. So you, you kind of pull the number out of the hat, and it decides whether you're supposed to be for or against the blue law. And we were supposed to defend and debate the blue law. So as I meet with my team, we're discussing our strategy on defending the blue law. I, I really know that the death nail would be a religious position. So I said, I think we need to go after this as really... A, a civil rights protection. It's a, it's a, it's a way of protecting uh, people in communities from the large corporation, from the big blue box, from uh, evil America kind of thing. That was the strategy. Everybody thought that was a good idea. And in our debate, each person has to have a role or a part they play. And we had this one guy who was... Um, you know, very much, at least in his mind, a devout Catholic. And uh, I say in his mind because his behavior and activities in our class would never suggest being a devout anything, but in his heart and mind, he was devout. And so when it came to his turn, the questions were flying, and in the moment of frustration, he just blurted out, it's because it's God's day and we're not supposed to do anything. And the whole thing crumbled. And they had us pinned and we went down to a flaming defeat. And the rest of the group was just staring at him. And he was just defiant. This is right. This is true. And he did the right thing. I think many Christians often wind up in that place of trying 
to hold a standard to people who don't appreciate, don't value, and don't believe in a standard. When we began this series, we began to look at the role of Scripture and these two pieces that it plays. The first thing it does is it really reveals God's intentions. We were singing about those so clearly in the song where it talks about Jesus' name, uh, the place where we escape fear, where we escape guilt. Uh, it is the place of absolute freedom. It's the, it's the name that makes our way home. And you see, that was really the first intention of Scripture is the revelation of God's intention toward you and I. No matter who we are, no matter what our walk of life is, actually, no matter what we believe, his, his arms are open to that reality. His story is the redemption of man and creation, the saving of those things, the restoring of all things to himself. The Scripture also has an important role of seeing who we are. And in, in, uh, in this society, in our world, uh, we are called lots of things. We are lots of things. But what God sees us as is his creation, his beloved. That's how he sees you. That's how he sees me. That's what he said. He said it early on. And in all his frustrations, all his struggles with humanity, he never took it back. He never said, I changed my mind. You are the pariah of the universe, and I'm going to kill you now. He, he never did that. Somehow he held to this reality, I created humanity, and I created them good. And they're in a lot of places, and they have forgotten a lot, and they have moved on, and they have rebelled, and they have rejected me, and they have, and they have, and they have. But he holds on to that truth. Do you see how that truth for him remains solid? And the way he gives that truth authority is he constantly operates as if you and I are good. That's how he operates. That's how he approaches you and I. When I say we're good, I'm not saying our behavior is good. I'm not saying we're not in rebellion. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying what he said is and what he believes and how he is operating is what he created is still there inside, and it's still good. It needs redemption. It needs salvation, but it's good. And then the third thing we find in Scripture is it reveals just a, a true host of ways to live our life, ways to relate to one another, ways to understand and walk in conflict, ways to live in harmony, ways to deal with struggles and problems and failures and defeats and disappointments, ways to deal with injustice, ways to deal with people who let you down or hurt you. Ways to approach God and to know God. Scripture takes the position on all those things, and it calls it truth. 
several weeks ago, and you can listen back on a podcast or you can chat with me, but we really kind of laid a foundation of how the Scripture and in its essence of those truths has proven itself to be true in history. It has a remarkable history for coming true. It has a, a supernatural, miraculous history for coming true. And, and God says in Isaiah 55, verse 11, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire. It will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And God is saying, I am going to back up my word, and it's going to come true, every bit of it. Now, the landscape that this identifies is if God's word, if it really is true, if he has a way of making his word come true, then to operate in the flow of that word puts us operating in the flow of God. And to operate counter to the flow of his word puts us operating counter to God. That's what the scripture is going to tell you. It's going to say, can you go that way or that way? And scripture would say, yes, you can. God is never going to force you on this road or that road. But he will identify that one of those is with me and one of those is against me. And it doesn't mean that I'm against you. What it means is you have chosen to go contrary or different than the way I'm going. Jesus, it's declared in, the first, in John chapter 1, uh, these things are declared Through all things were made through Jesus. Nothing exists outside of him. In him is life. He is the light of man. He is the light that darkness cannot overcome. It says Jesus is the word. And through that word, all things were made. Jesus was the authority in that word. He was the, he was the action part of the word. And here's how it plays out for you and I. All things exist because of the word who is Jesus. Nothing exists outside of him, Jesus, the word. In him, the word is life. And in the light, and he is the light of man. He is the word that is the light of man. And that word is the light that darkness cannot defeat. Jesus goes on to say, heaven and earth will pass away but my word will never pass away, demonstrating a real eternal quality for his word. As Jesus, and we're going to hit a little bit of a punchline today, but as Jesus is describing these things, he's setting the stage for the power and the importance of the word and whether we're going to actually give that word authority in our life. Then Jesus goes on in chapter 14. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the only way. To know me is to know God. To see me is to see God. Jesus is making some powerful claims. He is the word. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's the only way. And he says, to know me is to know God. To see me is to see God. 
He is revealing himself to be the way, the person of God. He is revealing himself in that way. But all these things are going to be challenged by our hardness of heart. They're going to be challenged by Satan. And they're going to be challenged by the world that we live in, which will devalue all of those things. So quickly, we have the big picture. And that's God wanting to store, restore humanity and creation to himself. He says, I am going to do it, and nothing is going to stop me. The storyline of your identity You were created in the image of God. He calls you very good, and he has created you with the purpose that is in his plan. And this final piece, God gives us the truth of the Scripture as that compass. It's that compass that we need in life to know the flow or the way of God. What is dependable, what is good for character, for behavior, for tough decisions, for values. And that truth, God's truth is exactly that. It's something that doesn't change. We're going to talk about why it might look that way from the Old Testament. And then the authority is the power that we can or we don't have to put behind it. And we see that Jesus never separated those two. He always put authority and truth together. Truth always deserves authority. Truth can rightly use authority. And he goes on to say, the truth will set you free if you follow it. If you follow it, it will set you free. If you give it the authority, it will set you free. If you give truth authority, doesn't matter what truth it is. You can give any truth authority. I can decide anything is true, and I can give it authority in my life. I can say there is no God, and I can give that authority in my life, and that becomes the truth that is molding me. It's molding my character. It's molding my identity. It is redefining me. Truth will, truth with authority defines you. Truth without authority doesn't do anything. It just stands as your opinion. It stands as your thoughts, your ideas. But until you give it authority, so something in your life has authority. Something is the decisions you are making. What we often do is our truth shifts. This week, I go to church. I like church. I'm following God. A month from now, you know, I'm doing something different. That was important back during the youth conference. Today, not so much. My concern in the church is that many of us, our truth is really kind of fluid. Our authority is attaching on family for a year, then maybe on God for a year, then maybe on work for a year, then maybe on a cause for a year, then back to family for a year. Then I'm fed up with everybody else and I just want to be me and focus on me. My truth is constantly moving. So what is happening? 
My experiences have become my truth. When church people annoy me, frustrate me, make me angry, and that becomes my truth, I give that authority. I'm not going to go to church. When somebody talks to me about church, I'll say, you know, I've tried that. I've done that. The people in the church are worse than anywhere else. That's my truth. And I'm not going to follow God. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to identify with that. I'm going to be critical of that because I have this experience that I have now declared true. It's true. And it was true because I experienced it. And there's nothing you can say to change my truth. It has the full weight of my authority. One day, uh, years ago in flight school, I got a call from somebody we're talking, and, uh, and there was a guy, a friend of mine. Well, he wasn't really a friend at the time. He's a good friend now. But he's lamenting there's this girl in our flight school that he likes, and he is talking to me about what to do to pursue this relationship. Well, I happen to know this girl, and I happen to know that she does not like him, and unfortunately, she happens to like me. I am not interested in her, but I'm thinking as he goes on and on, what would I do? So he finally, he asked me, what should I do? And I think about it. I said, well, here's what I would do. I would talk to God. I would ask God what to do. I would bring God into it. Oh, my gosh. He went totally off on me. He's yelling at me over the phone and cussing and, and talking about, you know, God is no father, and if God was this, and he goes on and on. And finally, I, I like, whoa, dude, you asked me what I would do. That's what I would do. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just saying that's what I would do. You see, his truth was coming from a different place. His truth did not give God such a lofty position to be involved in the places of his heart. He felt like God had violated that. For me, I can't imagine inviting anybody else into that place but God. He's very different today, and he's awesome. So, your truth is critical, and the authority you put behind it will decide many things for you, many things for me. If our truth is a moving target, and your life will reflect that. Your character will reflect that. Your hope will reflect it. Your behavior will reflect it. How your friends see you, how the world sees you, will reflect that you have a moving truth. Those are all things that God says, that will never reveal me. You see that? That will never reveal me. Now, as we started on this entire subject on the authority of Scripture, 
I have uh, questions about right and wrong. Is this a sin? Is this not a sin? Is this a sin? Is this not a sin? Well, why does the Bible say this and also say that? You know, I think those are interesting. But at the core, at the core, they are the wrong question. Now, it's not always easy to tell people who have a real honest question, is this wrong? It's not always easy to say, that's the wrong question. Well, it's my question, so that makes it the right question. And I got to kind of throw in with them on that. But here's the deal. The Scripture, Jesus, the Scripture, Jesus, they're the same here. They offer and extend themselves as a moral compass in life. And, and when you see where Jesus comes from and you see how he answers right, wrong questions, you will see that he doesn't go at it like an Old Testament answer. Now, it, it, it's really, uh, I, I just uh, copied this down. You know, if we're talking about same-sex marriage, if we're talking about homosexuality and people want to go to the Bible, let's say Leviticus chapter 11 and say, see, this is wrong. Of course, what I would do or someone who believes in same-sex marriage, uh, they would say something like this. Um, well, Leviticus prohibits eating of pork and selfish it bans the wearing of clothes made from two or more different materials. It contains all kinds of quasi-medical rules and regulations, which today scientific medicine appears to render redundant. There's some weird stuff that the Bible calls for in Leviticus. When I say weird, weird to us. So why would we not still follow those? Why would we pick and choose? And who decides what's right and wrong? It's a worthy question from the book of Leviticus. But I want you to realize that the Old Testament was a stopgap measure. It was an, an interim covenant. How do we know that? We know that the Old Testament rules were never designed to bring people home. It was designed to keep people going toward God. It was designed so that you or I would be cognizant of God and we would also be cognizant of the fact that we're really not very good at keeping rules. It begins to reveal a flaw. It, it demonstrates over and over again this ultimate flaw and it's one that most of us fall into. And that is rules. Right, wrong are something we're not very good at. We're not very good at it. Here's why. At its heart, rules are legalistic. Rules are legalistic. At their very heart, they're legalistic. So see, when somebody comes to me and says, is this right, is this wrong, on some level, they're wanting me to take them legalistic. 
See, if you want to really look at the idea of somebody saying, I'm going to go Old Testament, what they're saying is, I'm going to go legalistic. I'm going to go back. I'm going to leave relationship and go to legalistic. Oh, so when we do that, something drastic changes. So I have a volunteer right here. And so I, I tell this young man, I love you very much. You're awesome in my sight. You're amazing in every way. You're talented. You're gifted. All right, here are these 683 rules. I want you to follow these to the letter. Do not screw this up. I love you, man. Do not transgress one ever. In fact, in fact, don't even get close to one of those. You are awesome in my sight. I, I love you. I, I can't tell you uh, how amazed I am at you. And uh, so go follow those rules, and we're going to be just fine. How would you like to be in relationship with me? I mean, don't I sound fun? Like, wow, Bill, I bet Dylan feels real safe right about now. I mean, he got, oh, no, let's see. Yikes, okay, maybe. I'm done. And so what is the next obvious question? We're going to see if he can guess the obvious question. You're looking at your long list. What would be an obvious question? So what happens if I screw up? There you go. He can be taught. He's brilliant. So what happens if I mess up on this? You see, for every rule, there must be a consequence. Or it's not a rule, right? If you have a rule, it doesn't have anything on the back side of it. It's like, as the pirates would say, a guideline. You know, it's there, but nobody really, you know, we kind of move around it. Uh, we're not sure where it came from. You see, the Old Testament was exactly that. Had these rules. And then there was these penalties for the rules. But you see, relationship can never be born in that. This is why marriage itself is not designed with vows that are rules. You know, Here's my lovely wife. I take you as my, my lovely wife. Um, I was going to do this with Dylan, but I thought it would kind of distract people. Uh, uh, forever, uh, unless you do this or this. And uh, it's always, no matter what, except for these two things right here. Oh, by the way, do not jack with me on this one right here. You see, marriage doesn't sound anything like that in the vows, does it? In fact, there are no consequences when we say, I promise to love you no matter what, believe in you no matter what, to always honor you. Really? Really? You're going to do that? You're going to always love me, always honor me, always forgive me, always believe in me for better, for worse, sickness and health when I'm, you know, unemployed for nine years on the sofa, 
drinking beer, smoking cigarettes. You're still going to love me. Hungry and grumpy. Hungry, grumpy. <laughs> and where that begins is, yes. You see, that's the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And when you want to know the rule, you always need to know the consequence. So when somebody says to me, comes to me and says, uh, Bill, so is it a sin? Is it a sin? Is it on the paper to vote, to, to uh, date an unbeliever? Is it a sin? Is that the right question? Is that, is that really going to get us where we need to go? Because what if I say, yes, it is. What's the next question? What happens if I do it anyway? Absolutely. Like, is it a reprimand? Is it like God is annoyed with me for a couple of days? Because I could probably do that. Is it just a demerit? Do I move one address point away from the, from the throne? What happens if I date this person anyway. You see, that is where we're taking rules. That's what rules do. That's what they are. Thank you. This is why we struggle so much with the New Testament. We look at Jesus, and he answers them in ways that frustrate them. When, they're t when, the, um, when the Pharisees come to him, they want to trap him about marriage. Is it okay, is it permissible for someone to divorce their wife and remarry? Well, this is a political setup because the ruler had just beheaded John the Baptist for criticizing him about taking his brother's wife. How would Jesus do in the trap? What does Jesus do? Is it permissible? He comes back and says, what does Moses say? I'm going to translate that for you. What does the Old Testament say? What does the rule system say? Well, it's permissible you give them a, a basically a, a bill of divorce and, you know, they have a few other rules, but it goes, it goes along. And then he answers after that. He says, you know, that was true in the old system because of man's hard but it was never what God designed. Did he answer the question? No, he did not give them a yes, no answer. He answered them with what it should have been. He answered with God's design. He answered with the way God's truth 
designed it. When the woman is caught in adultery and they, the, the religious leaders bring her again, it's a trap for Jesus. You know, I'm almost convinced that every time we lean hard into rules with regard to other people, we're really trapping, we're trying to trap God more than anything. We're trying to manipulate God for our, for our benefit. So they bring this lady, hey, this lady was caught in the very act of adultery. The law says she should be stoned to death. What do you say? Give us your answer. No, yes, wrong, right. What is the answer? How did he answer him? Well, let the one of you here without sin throw the first rock. Did he answer? And then when they all walked away one by one, the woman is there, and he says, hey, where are your accusers? They all left. He says, then I won't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Do you hear the New Testament answer to the rule? That is a New Testament response. The New Testament reveals, I'm going to use this word and then switch it immediately, reveals a religion that's really a relationship. It reveals a relationship of grace where acceptance and our approval are found in that relationship. You see, the law and the rules was always about performance. It was always about being acceptable. It was about relating to God in a way that was acceptable to him. And what the New Testament says, in Jesus, he lifts that load off of you and I. Does it mean right and wrong become neutered? They become uh, inconsequential? No, they're still consequential. Is right still good and, and wrong still bad? Yes, those have not changed. What it is is that they are no longer rules that judge you. They are no longer rules that are held over you for your disqualification or your qualification. Do they become irrelevant? No, they don't become irrelevant, but they become the wrong question. What is the right question? The right question would be, if you really want it, here it is. What is pleasing to Jesus? What looks like him? What looks like Jesus? That's an important question. Can I dislike this person? They said something ugly about me on Facebook that wasn't true. I want to say something back. I want to set the record straight. I want to put that person in their place. Can I do that? Sure. Sure, that might be one demerit. You can get a gun and go over and kill them. That might be 10 demerits. I don't know. 
if you're looking at the rules system, what can I get away with? It's the wrong question. Because there's no life in it. That always comes up just short of life. This relationship is a culmination of great power and great sacrifice, which creates this all-inclusive reality for every person of value and acceptance. We, as our society, can really begin to make truth relative. Last week, we shared out of Judges chapter 17, 1 through 6. And we're just going to hit the punchline on that. There was a guy named Micah. Long story short, he stole some stuff, he re- some money. He returned some money. After that, he re- stole it from his mother, actually. When he returns it, she's very excited about that. She takes part of the money, and she builds an idol. She has an idol made out of silver. And so they decide they're going to worship it. They come up with their own new religion based on this amazing thing that he did. And she thanked the Lord. So she's got kind of idol worship and God working at the same time. And uh, it says he made a shrine for the idol. He made a sacred ephod and some household idols. Then he installed one of his sons as his personal priest. And the punchline is, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Today we live in a society where people want to do what seems right in their own eyes. They want, to, they want to do what seems right. So that's saying, I want my experiences to design my truth. Um, we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego last week where their consequences, their experiences, they're going to get thrown into a fire if they don't worship the idol. They say, nope, not going to do it. Uh, our God can and will save us, but if he doesn't, it's still not our God. And anyway, God did save them. Their truth was not recreated in their experiences. I don't know how many of you have heard of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. It is a true church. And uh, you wear the colander on your head um, it's all over the world now. <clears throat> and it started out as kind of a mockery of, of uh, you know, creation design kind of thing. But it's kind of taken off as real religion for many. And uh, they're writing scripture for it and all these things. It just seems right in their own eyes. And... Uh, there's a guy named Richard Dawkins. He's with the Church of the Nonbelievers. Um, he explains, the onus is on somebody who says, I want to believe in God, flying spaghetti monsters, fairy tales, or whatever it is. 
It is not up to us to disprove it. His language is, if you can't see it, feel it, touch it, or ever have any possibility of doing that, it is not our job to disprove your belief. It is your job to prove your belief. Now, this almost seems, I think, correct. Uh, The onus is on you. If you believe in a God that nobody's ever seen, heard, we have no physical evidence of, then really the pressure should be on you to prove that they're there. I think that's a very Old Testament thought. Second punchline of the day. My faith, my beliefs, mine, I don't have to prove them to anyone. I don't have to prove what I believe to anyone. Nowhere in the scripture does it say, I need to convince others what I believe is more correct than what they believe. That is not what the scripture says. The onus is not on me to convince anybody of anything Dan Vergano goes on, furthermore, according to Lance, I have no idea how to say that last name, Gararavi, an editor of the Journal of Religion and Theater, the flying spaghetti monster is ultimately an argument about the arbitrariness of holding any one view of creation, since any one view is equally as plausible as the flying spaghetti monster. So what is he saying? He's saying that every view of creation is equal. Everybody can believe whatever whatever they want to believe. It's really kind of true. People can and do believe whatever they want to believe. The question is not what people believe. The question is, what do you believe and what authority do you give it? We don't find in Scripture that Jesus ever made it a point to beat people up with truth. He just provided it. The Scripture stands as a moral compass. It stands as that compass of the flow of God, of the way he would live your life if he were here, if he were living your life. In 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse uh, 16 and forward, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives, correct us when we are wrong, and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The scripture, the truth, the rights, the wrongs that it provides you and I, 
is not, is really designed for internal consumption. It's designed for you. It's designed for me. It's designed for those who have said, I believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. I believe he existed. I believe he is the son of God. And I believe he died for my sins. That makes these for you. They aren't for the world. They will work for the world. But they are the life that you and I have been called to. So when I go out into the world, it is not my job it is not my call, it is not my purpose to go around and identify everything somebody else is doing that is not aligned with the purpose and the direction of Jesus. It's not aligned in a way that would be pleasing to Jesus. That is not what I do. Most of those people have not asked me to speak into their life. They haven't asked me for my moral code to be enforced on their life. You see, it's our own behavior. It's our own fidelity. It's our own living above the noise and the recklessness of this life. It's our own character. It's the way we handle adversity. You see, if we are walking in Christ with that, he says, that will make quite a statement for me. It will make really a very large statement for me. The question is, why aren't is not why aren't they living by the way that pleases me and is the flow of my direction? The question is, why aren't we? Why isn't the church valuing honesty over manipulation? Why isn't it valuing character over getting away with something? Why is it not valuing excellence over mediocrity? Why are we asking what I can get away with instead of what pleases him? You see, when we're operating in an Old Testament way, and most of us kind of do, I think it makes our life very susceptible, I think, to depression and anxiety because we're struggling with rules and at the same time wanting to and believing in grace. We're kind of tortured Instead of moving into the grace and know that the grace is there for me to live in a way pleasing to God. It's there in a way that gives me the power over the things in my life that are not pleasing to God. We can see it in 1 Timothy. <clears throat> and in Timothy, we really see a great message from Paul to Timothy. Because he really talks about how to handle the truth. How do we handle truth? I mean, I can walk out there and I can start spitting out, you know, rights and wrongs. Is that the right way to handle truth? You know, somebody walks in and 
<clears throat> maybe they, you know, colors clash a lot and they look kind of weird and we go, wow, dude, you really look ugly today. Even if that seemed, well, it's true. Is that the right way to handle truth? First Timothy chapter 4, starting verse 6. And talking about the grace of God, the gospel, the good news, how God has come to set people free, and he tells Timothy, if you explain these things to the brothers and the sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Christ Jesus. Listen to this, one who is nourished by the message of faith. You're going to be like one who is nourished by the message. You're going to be made alive. You're going to find healing, sustenance, wholeness. But nourished by this message of faith and the good teaching you have followed. Then he goes on. Don't waste time arguing over godless ideas, over old wives' tales. Don't, don't get caught up arguing doctrine. Don't do it. There's a, a guy named, wow, his name just left my head, Nicky Gumbel. He uh, is started a program called Alpha, and it's a, I think, 11-week program. It's just kind of like getting to know who God is, who the Bible is, these kinds of things. And, uh, and so somebody is listing their issues with, um, you know, tell them, well, this is what I struggle with. So he says, well, okay, so if I could, if I could address that question to your satisfaction, you think you'd be wanting to accept Christ. Well, and then he has another reason. Well, okay, if I, could, if I could address these two, to your satisfaction. And this went on like five or six times, and he listed all of the things that were really deal breakers for him when it came to Jesus. And so he said, all right, if I could, if I could address every concern you have completely to your own satisfaction, would you be interested in a relationship with Jesus? No. Do you know that's a lot of people? They might have reasons. But the real reason is, do I see him as my savior? Do I see him as one I can trust? I can call on. Is he my friend? Can he do for me what he said he could? All the other stuff, they're just that. They're reasons. Don't argue over these things. It says, instead, train yourself to be godly. You see how he's turned it back? Don't use these things to try to address and correct everybody else. Turn it inside. Instead, let it train you to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and the life to come. He's saying practice, train. Be disciplined. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it.
the message in chapter 2, verse 14 of 2 Timothy. Repeat these basic essentials over and over to God's people. Warn them before God against pious nitpicking. All right, that's by being picking at each other with religious stuff. Warn them against doing, don't do that. Which chips away at the faith. It just wears everyone out. Concentrate on doing your best for God. Work you won't be ashamed of. Laying out the truth plain and simple. Stay clear of the pious talk that is only talk. Words are not mere words, you know. If they're not backed by a godly life, they accumulate as poison in the soul. Hymenaeus and Philetus are examples, throwing believers off stride and missing the truth by a mile by saying the resurrection is over and done with. He says, here are the essentials. Repeat them over and over. Stop picking at one another with religious stuff. Focus and concentrate on doing your best stuff in the truth. And words without action are poison to the soul. Jesus is wanting, if you could stand, Jesus is lifting us to a calling that's way beyond rules. 